In the early 1970s, two men climbed into the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. They came to a remote spot in the woods miles from civilization. There, they recorded the sounds of a group of creatures whose existence is still debated. The sounds they captured remain to this day the most extensive collection of purported Sasquatch evidence on record. While their veracity is not a settled fact, not even within the Bigfoot community, an examination of the so-called Sierra Sounds shows the importance of defining evidence when it comes to cryptozoology, allows us to discuss the limits of linguistics in this examination, and even to bring a little ecology into the mix, as I am often wont to do. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and from here at the Cabin in the Woods in Wild West Cork, I investigate stories of monsters, hauntings, UFOs and fringe beliefs. We are critical, not cynical, here at the Cabin, so join us to find out what we can learn about the hunt for Bigfoot by examining these Sierra sounds. The reds and oranges are coming out more and more here in the forest, as autumn has its way. Soon the trees will be thinning, leaving fewer and fewer places that a large unknown animal could hide in, should there be one out there. Perhaps they are getting ready to hibernate this time of year. And also, please take note that the local forestry people are up to a bit of work today. You may hear some vehicles moving and even some chainsaw noises in the background. Joining me for this episode is not, as you might expect, a bottle of Sierra Nevada Ale. I've featured that particular brand before, but instead a can of Dark Druid by White Hag Brewing up in County Sligo. Dark Druid is a very odd beer. A chocolate coconut stout, certainly not to everyone's taste, but a sweet and pleasant beer to enjoy during a tale about mysterious doings in the forest. Grab yourself a beverage and get ready for this episode, Sounds in the Sierras, investigating famous Bigfoot vocalizations. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi, folks, you are welcome to the episode and you are very welcome to the cabin. I'm going to get the show off to a start with some shout outs first. Uh, first off, I have a shout out to listener Jen, who has sent us some more lovely postcards from New Mexico. Jen is no applesauce82 over on Instagram and has sent us some stuff from Roswell, New Mexico before. Now we have some more sort of uh, New Mexico related bits and pieces. So thanks, Jen. New Mexico, of course, is uh, a state soaked in UFO lore, not only for the very famous Roswell incident, also the Socorro, New Mexico uh, police sighting of, I think, 1962. That was the Lonnie Zamora sighting of the egg-shaped craft in the desert with the little men and the strange insignia written on the side. Always a good story, too. So, yep, thanks, Jen, for sending that in to us. Um, also, a shout-out to our friends over at the Real Life Ghost Stories podcast who've... Um, been really decent to us recently and uh, quoted a few episodes and gave us some shout outs they gave us a comment on our recent q anon episode they said absolutely fantastic episode about q anon fascinating and terrifying at the same time so thanks guys uh, we did a q anon episode of course very recently it's a little darker than the sort of material i usually like to deal with but it is important stuff and I would have felt neglectful not going there. We also, oh, I want to mention briefly that if that sort of thing 
is of interest to you and you do want to go deeper into it, there are some great people we interact with um, online who do shows and things that deal with QAnon. So I want to give a shout out to Cabal Minion, friend of the show, who digs into conspiracy stuff and keeps an eye on the problems with QAnon. He's at Minion Cabal on Twitter. Also, if you want more information on that, maybe check out the QAnon Anonymous podcast. It's a bit tougher to get into, I find, because it's kind of bro-y. There are layers and layers of in-jokes, but really they're doing the the really hard work of getting into the day-to-day details of what's happening with Q. And it just, you kind of need a certain amount of humor, I think, to be able to get through that dark material. I'll also mention Poker and Politics is another podcast dealing with the day-to-day changes of QAnon, sort of in a shorter format as well. So um, I won't be dealing with that stuff very often, hopefully, but uh, those guys are doing the, the heavy lifting out there. I Oh, I want to mention Jacob from Oakland over on Instagram, who said, yeah, the episodes about Jericho and Joe Rogan and Q were very good and do feel important at the moment. Nailed it. So thanks to Jacob. That's decent of you to say. And finally, Matt from Toronto said he was listening to the Q episode and there's been a few paused moments to capture the breath and shake the head. Well, yeah, me too, Matt. Me too, unfortunately. So my final mention of things happening at the moment is... So my favourite book about Bigfoot, which is what this episode is about, is called Where Bigfoot Walks, Crossing the Dark Divide. It's written by an ecologist called Robert Michael Pyle, and it's from 1995. And it's absolutely brilliant. I like it because he's an ecologist. He takes an ecologist's view on the Sasquatch phenomena. He's a little bit cagey about whether he believes or not for most of the book. He does sort of show his hand towards the end. But as a result, he's quite even-handed about the whole thing. And he's, he's you know, he's giving it the benefit of the doubt. And he's saying, well, OK, look, as almost as a thought experiment... If this was real, how would it, if this was a real animal, how would it function ecologically, given what we know about large mammals and primates, and given what we know about the ecology of specifically the Pacific Northwest? And in the book, he, as a sort of early middle-aged man, I believe he's in his 40s when this happens, he, and and slightly unfit at that, he undertakes a a large hiking expedition across um, a particular mountain range called the Dark Divide in Washington State. And as he walks, he does a lot, it's mostly nature writing, uh, with some sort of Sasquatch stuff in there as well. And I really, really enjoy it. If you like... If you like Into the Wild or the, the Cheryl Strayed Wild book about the PCT and you like that particularly 90s outdoor scene, this is full of that. So I really enjoy it. Anyway, this is relevant because a, a film was made of this. Um, I think it was probably shot in 2018. It was due to be released in early 2020, but then obviously COVID happened and it got put on the shelf. And I've been following this for a couple of years wondering when the film would come out, would I be able to access it? And at the moment, it is due for a sort of an online-only release through certain channels in exactly two days. So that will be September 18th. So if you're in the States, you can watch this now, or you will be able to watch it within a couple of days. I won't. I'll have to wait a little bit later here in Europe to get to get a hold of it. The They've junked the name Where Bigfoot Walks, and they're just calling the film The Dark Divide. So and judging by the trailer, there's they seem to really have sidelined or minimalized the the Bigfoot stuff. They they're making it into like a 
kind of an indie movie story about a middle-aged guy finding himself while out on the trail, which, you know, still looks good. And I'm excited to see whether or not any of the Sasquatch stuff makes it into the film, but I will be watching that as soon as I can if it's the sort of thing you're interested in and you are in the States, as my stats tell me many of you are, then I'd love to know what you think of the film. Do get in touch with us, as usual. We can be found on Twitter, where we're at Strange Ireland, or on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So, to get us acclimatized to the story of Bigfoot and the Sierra Sounds, I'm actually going to read a tiny bit from Where Bigfoot Walks by Robert Michael Pyle. Early in the book, he notes... In her book, Stepping Westward, Sally Tisdale says she feels sorry for the, quote, true disbelievers in Sasquatch who have, quote, lost their own mammalian vigilance about the greater Earth. I agree, because most of all, Bigfoot shows what could have been and what still could be if only we treated the land as if it were really there. For the very wilderness from which the Bigfoot myth emanates is disappearing fast. The struggle for the leavings the roadless zones, the old growth, is vigorous and current. If we manage to hang onto a sizable hunk of Bigfoot habitat, we will at least have a fragment of the greatest green treasure the temperate world has ever known. If we do not, Bigfoot, real or imagined, will vanish, and with its shadow will flee the others who dwell in that world. Looking at that tangled land, one can just about accept that Sasquatch could coexist with towns and loggers and hunters and hikers, all in proportion. But when the topography is finally tamed outright, no one will any more imagine that giants are abroad on the land. I really love this, folks. Not only is there is there a wonderful conservation element running through this book, which ties into my own professional career and interest, but... It's touching on some of these these themes that we hit all the time on this show, which is that animals such as 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 Bigfoot and, and perhaps cryptozoology in general is a sort of an unconscious longing to accept perhaps the the ravages that we've made upon nature and and the wish to believe that there's still wilderness out there that something as large as as a Bigfoot could exist out there and if he if indeed it does well that shows we haven't done too much damage yet and that's kind of where Robert Michael Pyle takes it in this book he one of his running themes is that whether or not Sasquatch is real if we protect landscape with him in mind or it in mind then we are protecting everything else as well which is good whether or not you really do believe and whether or not the animal really is real so this brings up the whole thorny issue of like, what would a functioning population size be for a large uh, undiscovered hominid in, in North America? And people have different ideas about this, obviously, because the hard evidence that would convince uh, a scientist that the animal is real doesn't currently exist. And there are different versions of what Bigfoot is, and it means different things to different people. So when the idea was kind of first gaining traction um, across the on a nationwide scale in the 1950s, I think largely from the literature, it was presumed that this was an animal that could only live in the vast forests of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, over time, as the sort of meme of Sasquatch has spread, there is now a culture where he's seen in every single state. 
in sometimes in areas which are large enough that you know large enough wilderness areas that you know are not absolutely ridiculous but sometimes showing up in in areas of habitat that are so fragmented and so suburban that it, it strikes me as more of a almost more of a folkloric or urban legend creature than one that you could put any stock into as a real zoological flesh and blood creature so yeah there's differing visions of bigfoot is he just an animal that could only live in the in the pnw or is it something that's everywhere as a ecologist myself i i more attached to the idea i i like him to be as realistic as possible i i like the idea people had in the 50s that you know this is only believable in really 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 vast areas of, of forest um, and that so that that has an effect on what kind of populations you would expect to see over the whole country and, and canada also Let's turn to the BFRO, the Bigfoot Research Organization. Whether you like them or not, they're probably the largest and most well-organized collector of this kind of information. Uh, and when asked about the population size, they say the short answer is no one knows and no one will ever know for sure. There are only estimates. The informed estimates range from roughly 2,000 to 6,000 individuals for all of North America, which includes all of Canada and Southern Alaska. So, I mean, from the believer's point of view, that gives us a sort of a ballpark figure as to what they're, what they're estimating. And they, they go on, they say some of the considerations are, and yeah, they give a list of sort of how are they coming up with this number? What kind of things are, what kind of data are we dealing with? So they say the numbers of credible reports and track finds since such information started being gathered in the early 1960s. You know, okay, um, I mean, in, in, in the absence of, of a body or any hard evidence, well, that, that is what we have to deal with. Um, the only quibble I would have, of course, is what you consider to be credible, and that will, of course, change from one investigator to another. The fact that most observers described having a lot of hesitation before reporting their observations caused by the fear of ridicule, ridicule from their peers which suggests that most observers never come forward to report their observations. This is probably true, and this feeds into lots of other types of data. So when we're trying to estimate the extent of other phenomena, you know, whether or not people are likely to be forthcoming or how many years they might wait before they come out with their story is a factor. And it certainly feeds into other kinds of, I mean, I mean, to get a little bit dark, it feeds into various abuse narratives within uh, various governmental Hollywood church organizations that sort of thing that the, the fact is we exist in a culture where it isn't always easy for certain kinds of people to come forward with stories of problems and I think it's fair to say that if you were a scientist or perhaps a forestry professional who had an encounter like this you are existing in a system which would probably make it difficult for you to be upfront with your story however estimating you know how much of this is going on and, and turning it into cold hard numbers I, I i find difficulty with i don't know how you would do that uh, they then say observations consistently suggesting extreme elusiveness fear of humans nocturnal feeding and nomadism interesting um the, we're, we're considering the potential behavior of the animal at this point and saying that they probably are very good at uh, staying out of sight they're probably very good at avoiding people they're probably rather intelligent this will come in later when we get to the sierra sounds because well while this is true and and it's true of other animals as well 
it does become a bit of an excuse sometimes when people are asked to justify the lack of evidence. But we, we'll get to that. I had colleagues who worked with Pine Martins, for example, here in Ireland, which um, are on the up. Actually, numbers are going up. And some folks told me that they had been working with them for years and never seen one because they are nocturnal and elusive animals. But, I mean, we still know Pine Martins exist. They show up on trail cameras all the time. So, again, we're, we're postulating an animal which we're almost designing it to be sort of impervious to leaving any evidence behind, which does become an issue for me. Uh, finally, they say observations consistently suggesting that Bigfoots and Bigfoot groups need a lot of space but stay more or less on the move in forests throughout their lives. Again, making it difficult for us to to catch evidence for them because while there may be a large enough amount of them altogether, they spread out and don't live in large groups. Now, speaking of which, as I speak, the Pacific Northwest once again is up in flames, which is incredibly saddening. I spent a little bit of time there many years ago uh, working with a nature conservancy in Oregon, and I had a blast. I, I feel... You know, I certainly have a, a little part of me that uh, that part of the country means a lot to me over there. So it is extremely sad to see what's going on there at the moment. Using Bigfoot as a sort of a metaphor for habitat loss in general, for all, all the other kinds of animals that are absolutely being lost, it's hard to escape the idea that if the animal is real, the available habitat for it would be shrinking and the animal would be critically endangered at this point. I think there's no way around that unless you subscribe to the sort of version of Bigfoot where it exists in, in every single state and even tiny little areas of habitat which as an ecologist I, I have a hard time with it it's not it's not common for top end megafauna. In August of 2018 a, a forest fire that year destroyed a particular spot somewhere in the Sierra Nevada mountains and according to a man named Ron Moorhead the very particular spot where a famous series of recordings of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, known as the Sierra Sounds, that region was completely destroyed. The fire variously referred to as being either the Ferguson Fire or the Donald Fire that year, but the exact location has never been disclosed. The story goes that in the 1970s, Ron Moorhead and a colleague, Al Berry, spent many, many, many nights camping in this particular region of the Sierra Nevada mountains and captured the audio, which we now know as the Sierra Sounds. And I did spend a little time in the Sierras once upon a time, many years ago, so I have seen it. It's a beautiful place. It's just big enough to make you imagine that, you know, some sort of unknown creature could be out there. And this story of the Sierra Sounds... I'm not talking about it because it's particularly convincing. I'm not talking about it because it is particularly well regarded even in the field of Sasquatch evidence. I'm talking about it because it sort of sums up a, a weird fantasy for me. It reminds me of my time in in the forest in, in parts of the PNW and, and other parts of, of North America as well. The idea of hiding out at a campsite uh, somewhere so remote where these things could still be and uh, not seeing them but having some other kind of evidence there is absolutely fascinating for me and as we always say on the show I want to believe but the evidence of course uh, has to be good so uh, probably those of us who like being outdoors know that when you're camping any animal no matter how small 
sounds enormous and especially if you're camping somewhere where you're concerned possibly about bears or anything like that and you're sort of all of your nerves are on high alert uh, it is a very evocative feeling and maybe one that we don't get all that often in our lives these days anymore so I, I kind of treasure those um, those memories quite a bit uh, Ron Moorhead by the way is still quite active he talks on shows and there are a lot of interviews with him available and you can hear him talking about this himself extensively He's one of those guys where you listen to, I listen to him, and I really want to believe. So, like like talking to these people who have had these encounters, I, I want to believe them. You know, I, I feel like I'm side by side with a world which is bigger and more mystical and and exciting. And if only I can make that leap, uh, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be there with you guys. But, you know, you've got to build that bridge for me. You've got to convince me. And uh, my investigations into the history of sort of frauds and fakes has left me uh, extremely careful about getting on board with such things. So you're listening, listening to these people and either they are true believers or they are hoaxers, uh, some of whom have sort of come around to believe in their own story over the years. Moorhead, of course, sells copies of the Sierra Sounds. He has 80 minutes of audio altogether, which is more substantial than any other video or audio evidence for supposed Sasquatch so that make that alone makes it remarkable we'll get to what they sound like in a moment or in time and you can well you can see what you think yourself now there are some interesting Bigfoot recordings out there I, I'm, I'm quite partial to a recording known as the Umatilla Howls from 2013 uh, that's from uh, Oregon also there is a great video online of a fellow standing outside a house on, I think, a reservation somewhere up in Umatilla, and uh, there are some really crazy sounds coming from the forest outside his house. Really, really odd stuff. If it is indeed happening right there and not added in post, which is always a possibility, it's pretty remarkable stuff. The only thing that kind of spoils it for me is when he says, oh, my, my buddy who's making a Sasquatch documentary will love that, which... I don't know, you know, just any time that it's revealed the person recording the sound was not a disinterested observer, but was actually involved in, you know, uh, collecting information or making a documentary kind of turns me off it a little bit. Interestingly, for that particular recording, Cliff Barrickman, who's like massive Squatch proponent, uh, not not always the most critical, but he, he thinks this one is a fox and, and we'll get to we'll get to fox sounds. Don't worry. So the Sierra sounds, not necessarily to me personally, the most compelling or convincing, but it's got a great story. Uh, it's an early case of uh, Sasquatch audio evidence, and it has a very charismatic protagonist. So we're going to talk about it. What happened? In 1971 and 2, a bunch of deer hunters had a camp in the Sierra Nevada mountains. The location, not known for sure, but somewhere between Lake Tahoe and Yosemite Park. It's pretty remote. In order to get there, um, you had to travel 10 miles up the mountains from the nearest road and then from the top, uh, travel across eight miles of switchbacks um, over the top of the mountain. So not an easy place to get to. Apparently, all equipment had to be taken up with um, horses. So reasonably unlikely that somebody else would have been out there just trying to punk you. So, you know, make of that what you will. The site itself was 8,000 feet in elevation. And supposedly these deer hunters had been using it since the 50s and had built a, a lean-to cabin. Now you can see what this looked like online. It was rough. It, the word cabin I'm using generously. It's basically 
a bunch of logs stacked up against a tree. The idea of like hiding in there while these big creatures that you're going to hear might have been like cavorting around outside you just a few feet away uh, absolutely makes my skin crawl. I don't mind admitting it. So the story goes that these deer hunters were experiencing phenomena. They were finding footprints. They were hearing strange sounds at night. So they wanted somebody to come along to confirm this. The person they asked was a man by the name of Al Berry, who's going to be one of our two main protagonists in this story. Berry was a reporter. He's been linked with uh, the record Searchlight and the Sacramento Bee over the years. And the story goes that he was a skeptic at the beginning. Now, I don't know if this is true. This is how everybody involved has told the story after the fact. So again, make of that what you will. But he well, he brought a gigantic Sony tape recorder, a big reel-to-reel machine, up these switchbacks into the mountains with these guys. And what they did was they hung a microphone from a tree about 50 feet away from where the the lean-to was. And the activity that they picked up, they estimated to have been from animals that were about another 50 feet away again from the microphone. Now, the supposed surroundings of the sound that you're going to hear, it's supposed to be October, there is early snow on the ground, and that, they claim, deadens or has a dampening effect on the sound. Because I do notice that there's not a lot of atmosphere in this. You don't hear um, a lot of sort of background noise from being in the forest. The sounds that you hear from the animals... Well, you you can decide for yourself. By 2019, it seems that um, another, well, uh, over nine expeditions had been made between Alberry and a fellow by the name of Ron Moorhead, who is currently the biggest proponent of, of these recordings. So the two of them have been up there many, many times over the years. Uh, 2019 is when Ron Moorhead said this in an interview, the particular site, of course, supposedly having been burned away the, the year before. Moorhead was a hospitality manager and a church board administrator in a town in California called Merkid. He was basically a, a sort of an outdoorsman. Uh, he is now considered to be financially independently wealthy, so he had a lot of money over the years to just play around with this. And the two of them got on board with these Sasquatch noises and basically did talks about them, have spoken and written about them extensively. And to this day, as I said, Ron Moorhead sells two CDs of the Sierra Sounds, one of which delightfully is narrated by Jonathan Frakes, who is, of course, Riker in Next Generation. I'm a big TNG man myself. I was absolutely thrilled to see that. I would listen to that man read the phone book. So... In the Searchlight newspaper, much, much later, Al Berry said, It was very startling. I didn't know what to think. Viscerally, my knees were shaking and my insides were turning a bit. I was wondering if what I was hearing was some creature that was stranger than anything we know. I had taken a fair amount of ridicule and scorn from the academic community in an effort to enlist scientific interest, but the mystery remains. The tapes remain open to challenge and a lot of questions and answers remain. Alberry died in 2013, and there were some obituaries from which I was able to extract some further information. So from the same article in the Searchlight, a friend described him as being aide-de-camp to an important general in the Vietnam War, and apparently saw quite a bit of action. He was a big, powerfully built man, I'd estimate six foot three, 
erect, good posture, brownish blonde curly hair, and he pursued manly things. Hunting, fishing, hiking the backcountry, mining. It sounds cliché to say Al was a man's man, but it's true. In this second decade of the third millennium, big, handsome, testosterone and whiskey fueled guys like Al, sadly, are out of vogue. So there you go, folks. Al Berry, old-fashioned manly man. I read also he was a bit fond of the old wild turkey. And I like the sort of linking here of Bigfootery with old-fashioned manly man doings. I think I've said before that part of the Bigfoot community, I suspect, is a sort of a, a, a return to, quote, old-fashioned um, manly interests. You know, coming up with the notion that this whole thing appears in the 1950s and takes off in the 1950s. I don't think it's a coincidence that that is the very, very tail end of the old colonial empire, the maybe the very, very latest period at which you could say the world was one in which you could still go out into, quote, remote places and have adventures and, you know, find undiscovered things. Shortly after the 50s, that sort of trope in movies and books kind of falls away and we sort of have to be a lot more creative in our storytelling in order to tell the old story of the manly man who goes off and does, you know, adventurous things, discovers things, tests himself. Uh, that that story sort of drops off at that point and people, I think people still have that need and they, they start to find it in increasingly strange places. Okay, so let's talk about what they really heard and what they really recorded. So let's talk about animal noises. I've got, a f there are a few... There are a few particular animal noises that you are likely to hear in the wilderness of North America, and we're going to listen to them. So, let's start with foxes. Uh, red fox, they can be found uh, over there, they are found over here, you've probably seen them yourself. They make a very wide variety of weird noises. 30 to 40 different kinds of sounds for different kinds of situations. Uh, but I think the one I'm going to play for you which is of most interest, is known as the vixen scream. So in the winter, a little bit later than these guys were out in the forest, to be honest, in this part of the world, I'd expect to hear this December, January, February. Basically, when the mating season happens, the females primarily make a absolutely hair-raising and terrifying noise known as the vixen scream. I have absolutely no doubt that in this part of the world, at least, this sound is responsible for the legend of the banshee because it can absolutely sound like a woman screaming or crying when you hear this in the midst of the dark night. Okay, absolutely hair-raising and terrifying. Usually when you hear that, it is the female calling out to the male. Now, another animal that you might hear in the middle of the North American night is, of course, the coyote. Now, coyotes, of course, are social animals, so the famous howls would be a sort of the, 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 the group signaling to one another if they have separated for hunting purposes to get back together, or sometimes to define territory for other other creatures as well. So let's take a listen to the coyote. Coyote. <laughs> 
Okay, and also a possibility depending on where you are in the country is a wolf. I did work with a fellow once in Ontario who was a very good wolf caller. Uh, took, we went out one evening while in a fairly remote location and he said, "Watch or li- listen to this and uh, gave his own howl across the lake and I wasn't really expecting much and sure enough, uh, a few of the animals uh, answered back. So they will do that if indeed you know what they're you know what you're doing. So let's have a listen to the wolf howl, which again, in with with this species, is also usually an insular uh, communication tool. Okay, clear classic sound of the wild there. Now let's talk about cougars or mountain lions. I I have a story where I was camping one time in the Minnesotan woods and I awoke in a hammock hanging from trees, unexpectedly by myself. Some other folks who had been there earlier in the night had actually bailed and gone back to base. And I heard a sound beneath me that sounded distinctly uh, feline. And my worry was that it could have been a cougar. They're not common in Minnesota. In fact, sightings are supposed to be quite low. And it's not reckoned that there are like a breeding population there. But there are occasionally transient animals sighted coming over probably from the Dakotas. But I did know a few people who had sightings in the time I was there. And the general attitude by people who spent a lot of time in the woods at the time was that, you know, it's... Remarkable, but not unthinkable that you would come across one. This animal, whatever it was in the pitch dark, was sort of purring or growling just beneath me. And of course, in a hammock, you're only a few feet off the ground. So absolutely terrified. And until the animal walked away after an agonizing few minutes, and I was able to see in the moonlight the silhouette of the animal just as it came up onto a rise. It was definitely quadruped, but I was unable to guess its size accurately. Today I think it probably was a fox. The Like I said the range of sounds they make is enormous and they always seem to find a way to surprise you even when you do think you know what they sound like. But my fear was that it was a cougar who also make a rather astonishing array of sounds and can also sound quite human-like. So let's take a listen. Alright, so those are not the only animals you might hear when you're out in the wilds in North America, but those are some of the bigger, some of the scarier, the louder, and some of the more common ones. Now we're going to listen to just a very small amount of the Sierra sounds. So imagine you're up in the mountains, you're 20 miles away from where you parked, there's nothing but forest around you, it's the middle of the night, you are hiding behind a few planks of wood in this made, in this lean-to shack, and you are hearing this. (laughs) 
folks, uh, there you go. That's what all the fuss is about. Now, some people, cynical perhaps, might dismiss this out of hand and say, Kian, that's ridiculous. What are you doing spending all this time on it? And I sympathize. Uh, it's it's <laughs> offhand. First impressions have always been the sound does not live up to the expectations set by the story. I love the story. I don't really love the sounds. To me, it does sound like a person doing it. Of course, folks have argued up and down about whether or not that's possible, whether or not that's likely. And just for the sake of argument, we're going to investigate some of those arguments as well. Now, rather unfortunately, the term samurai chatter has been used in regards to this sound uh, because of, I guess, a rather old-fashioned interpretation that some of them sound like the way, you know, Japanese people are interpreted as speaking in old-fashioned movies, very often when they're played by people like Mickey Rooney, which isn't great, but there you go, that's what they're called. So, just a few thoughts straight away. Given the supposed circumstance, the fact that this is being recorded in the woods 50 50 feet away from a microphone doesn't sound incredibly likely to me. The sound is is, is rather flat, um, as if, like, you know, an animal, or heaven forbid, a person, is right up next to the microphone, like I am now, just talking straight into it. Because in reality, if you've done any wildlife uh, recording yourself, you'll know that distance plays a huge role. Now I'm back here. Now I'm over on the left-hand side. Now I'm over on the right-hand side. Now I'm facing away from the microphone. So hopefully you can feel the, the shape of the room um, in a way that, for me personally, I don't find with the Sierra sounds. It feels very flat to me, which of course implies that it perhaps was not recorded where and when is claimed that it in fact it was. But what you will usually see by people who are in favor of this being a true story is that these sounds were analyzed professionally by a fellow by the name of Scott Nelson, a retired Navy cryptolingualist. He's done loads of talking about this over the years. There are many, many, many YouTube lectures that you can get with this fellow. Uh, if you're interested in going down that particular rabbit hole. In fact, after the death of Al Berry in 2013, this guy, Scott Nelson, is basically the premier exporter of this idea alongside Ron Moorhead. So what is a Navy cryptolingualist and do they have any right to be sort of interpreting this sort of thing? So based on the, you know, American official Navy websites, the job duties of a cryptolingualist involve identifying and analyzing foreign communications, recognize changes in transmission modes, provide translation expertise to analysts. So that's interesting. They're not lingualists, who of course would be probably the best placed person to deal with such things, but still, you know, some skills there. Scott Nelson has spent a lot of time breaking this down, this recording, claiming that there is real language there, claiming that he's made translations, he's using something he calls the Bigfoot phonetic alphabet, which honestly is a little more than I have time to get into today. However, I have found a really, really interesting paper um, claiming that these sounds are literally impossible for a human to make. So I think this is something a little tighter that we can get to grips with. So the main writer on this paper is Dr. R. Lynn Curlin, who's a professor of electrical engineering at the University of Wyoming. So it's often claimed by proponents of the Sierra sounds, oh, this has been 
Uh, it, this has been the result of a, the subject rather, of an extensive survey from the University of Wyoming. And to some extent that's true because we have this, we have this paper. The paper is called Estimates of Pitch and Vocal Tract Length from Recorded Vocalizations of Purported Bigfoot by R. Lynn Curlin and Lassie Hertel. So at the beginning they say, having analyzed a tape recording of purported Bigfoot speech using accepted techniques of signal processing, the authors conclude that the means and ranges of the recorded pitch and estimated vocal tract length of the speakers indicate that the sounds were made by a creature with vocal features corresponding to a larger physical size than man. They also conclude that the tape shows none of the expected signs of being pre-recorded or re-recorded at altered speed and hence diminish the probability of a hoax. They're saying it wasn't slowed down to give the voice like a deeper register to make it sound like a larger animal. In the conclusions they say the results indicate more than one speaker one or more of which is of larger physical size than an average human adult male. The formant frequencies found were clearly lower than for human data and their distribution does not indicate that they were a product of human vocalizations and tape speed alteration. They also point out that nobody on this paper is in fact a linguist, but that their sort of areas of expertise come from other areas, uh, electrical engineering and such. So, you know, still, it's good to have their input. I, I respect the thoughts of somebody with such a qualification, though still not exactly the kind of people I'd want to have the sort of last word on this, perhaps. Just for the other take, I'll give a few of the skeptical takes on this one. Um, so over at Skeptical Humanities, they write... Nelson's actual transcriptions and comments suggest that A, he himself does not in fact know enough linguistics for his purpose here, and B, that the phonology of Bigfoot language, if the language is genuine, appears implausibly similar to those of Indo-European languages, and in particular to that of English. Interesting. This calls to mind, in, in the late 19th century, there was this weird sort of tradition of like spirit messages, kind of like a subset of spiritualism, where people were hypnotized and were giving supposed messages from usually the planet Mars, and they were writing these down, and some of them came up with these very elaborate languages with all of their own symbols and everything, but uh, later on people who studied this realized that though the languages were unique and had been generated either consciously or unconsciously by the person writing them, they were usually undone by the structure of the language, that it would be traced either to English or to French, which kind of shows that, you know, the, the human imagination and the subconscious is capable of amazing things, but it also does have limitations. We can create alternate languages, but we're still kind of stuck to the concept of the language that we were taught ourselves or that we do speak ourselves. Over at Scientific American... Uh, Karen Stolz now says, oh, we're, we're deep into the hardcore skeptic land here, which is not something I, I super identify with, but let, let's just see what they have to say. The vocalizations are an amateur impression of how a proto-language might sound if it evolved from non-human primates. This Bigfoot is likely human, and the Sierra sounds a combination of hoax and misidentification, like all of the other evidence for Bigfoot. Similar to the claims of the so far mythical Orang Pendek, Bigfoot would 
probably communicate using vocalizations. However, non-human primates don't have the physiology to produce a wide variety of speech sounds, so it is unlikely that Bigfoot would have developed language or would be able to speak existing human languages. Having said all that, for me personally, at the end of the day, sort of the most convincing takedown of this is just the fact that people have fairly convincingly recreated these noises on YouTube. You can go and see it yourself. I'll put a link in the notes. And and for me, that's where Occam's razor comes in. I don't need to invoke unknown creatures for sounds that are a little bit strange, if indeed people can make those sounds, no matter what the story, no matter how compelling the framework is. Another interesting point is that Darren Nash, who's, uh, who I mention all the time, he's a British uh, paleo expert who has a sideline interest in, in, in cryptozoology and, and does a very fine line in exposing a lot of it, though uh, his attitude generally is healthy enough in that, he look, he wants to believe he's open to this being real if, if, if it's convincing enough. Though, as of about 2016, he's moved into this idea of like post-cryptid cryptozoology which i I'm, I'm getting to myself honestly where he thinks the whole thing is more uh, psychological more social than it is zoological he just points out like these sounds are completely unlike any of the other purported bigfoot sounds that anybody else is recording anywhere in north america and while we said earlier that a lot of real animals have a wide variety of sounds that they can make there isn't really anything quite as, as out there quite as different as this and it sort of seems to be unique to Moorhead and his recordings. All right, let's answer the question everybody's screaming subconsciously. If they were sitting in this shack and Big Feet were out there many, many times, many, many nights, over many years, 50 feet or 100 feet away, why isn't there any more evidence than this sounds? Why didn't they get a picture? So... Right, I've heard Ron Moorhead's answer for this himself, and unfortunately, I find him quite dismissive. He just chuckles and says, oh, of course, you know, only somebody who's never tried to photograph them would say that, which goes back to our answer that we're kind of talking, his concept, conception of Bigfoot is an animal that is, can never be photographed because it's just so clever. They they recognize field cameras, they walk around them, and they just jump out of the way and hide as soon as you point a camera at them. They didn't see the animals themselves very often, maybe once or twice over the years, which all kind of feels apologetic to me. It feels like you're constructing a creature deliberately to avoid any kind of leaving any kind of evidence, which is which is a little bit sad. And this is this is a problem with all of what what's called habituation cases. So there's a subset of Bigfoot believers who have this sort of habituation thing, which is people who claim they're living somewhere remote and they encounter Bigfoot all the time and he's there all the time and they have a relationship and they're leaving each other messages in the forest by, you know, leaving these kind of structures made of sticks and stuff like that. Long, continuous encounters that nonetheless sort of leave us with no evidence. I just don't buy it. This is really, really far away from the kind of practical pelt and fur Bigfoot that I came for and, and that's kind of where I check out. Now, the sounds aren't the only... Uh, evidence that Moorhead and Barry came up with. They did claim there were footprints, uh, which I've been unable to find photographs of myself, but I'll just say that Jeff Meldrum, who was the, the Idaho State University kind of successor to Grover Krantz as being like almost the only academic current who 
is openly in favor of Bigfoot. He didn't fancy the the the, the photographs of the footprints. He thought they were faked. And Grover Krantz himself was not impressed with the sounds either. So when those are the two most credible sources on on this phenomena from an academic point of view and honestly neither of them neither of them were were impressed to be honest so what was the legacy of the sierra sounds like i said they're not considered to be hotshot surefire evidence even in the world of bigfoot they never acquired the mystique that the patterson gimlin uh, film did or the the 1951 shipton prints in in the himalayas they're not one of these iconic cryptozoology artifacts but they certainly did provide a key bit of early evidence certainly in the audio spectrum that kind of makes me think about the nature of belief the nature of evidence what we will accept ourselves and maybe the changing nature of bigfoot so at this point in the 70s we've had 20-ish years of study and bigfoot has kind of gone from something that you know practical outdoor people are hoping to track and it's gone from that to a slightly more spiritual mystical thing in in that you can have all this habituation all of this interaction but not provide anything too solid in the way of evidence moorhead in 2012 wrote a book about his encounters called voices in the wilderness and it's fair to say that samurai chatter occasionally does show up in 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 other bigfoot recordings really not frequently the reason being i don't think there's a whole lot out there in the woods that could be mistaken for samurai chatter and i don't think it's i honestly i don't think it's particularly easy to mimic either even for a person so it just doesn't show up it it, after the fact it never becomes a major part of bigfoot lore later uh the original tapes were supposedly destroyed by a fire but you can still buy recordings of them online to this day and in his most recent work moorhead is now kind of promoting the idea that well the reason you can't get proper evidence for bigfoot is that he is a quantum a quantum animal who can appear and disappear and come out of portals and all of that sort of thing and if you know me you'll know that that's kind of where i get off the train i'm not i'm not coming to the bigfoot table to talk about that sort of thing it's it's one thing with ghosts and time slips and stuff if you if you want to talk about quantum physics but you know, when I want when I want to go monster hunting, I want to go monster hunting. It's about camping. It's about being out in the woods. It's about the wonder of nature, and it's about how how the positivity from this can be turned into real benefits, especially when it comes to conservation and and the work that has happened in the Himalayas over the years. The the search for the Yeti can literally be traced to the creation of some of their biggest national parks out there. So really good stuff can come from this if you're looking in the right places. And to wrap things up, I'm going to turn back to the book Where Bigfoot Walks for a final quote. So Robert Michael Pyle writes, Back in the meadows and ponds on Yellow Jacket Pass, those were probably black bear prints, and the whistles I had heard were likely some taunting dialect of the grey jay. Yet they had the tone and tenor of the whistles commonly described by Indians claiming to be familiar with Sasquatch and the tracks and stride had the right dimensions, if not much detail. They were as, quote, good as many that had been claimed as Bigfoot. The workings of the solitary mind are a wondrous thing. There was nothing on Yellow Jacket Pass that I, as a biologist, would ask anyone else to consider seriously as evidence for the presence of another primate. 
Yet, just there and then, I was perfectly prepared to believe. Not to believe in Bigfoot necessarily, but to believe that the world is wider than we normally wish to accept. To believe that, yes, that could be the whistle of an ape. Those might be the tracks of the whistler. That I might not be alone up there, after all. And that's what I like about Robert Michael Pyle, folks. He leaves the door open just a crack as I try to myself. So, thanks for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Next up, I'm doing a trip to the Hellfire Club outside Dublin. That is a sort of an infamous 1700s structure, which was the base for a famous or infamous debaucherous cult in those days. Uh, Rich old men who were interested in shocking all of society, drinking, carousing, supposedly summoning Satan. There are a lot of uh, rumors, folk tales, and urban legends associated with the place. So um, the next episode will be a... I'm going to go into the archives and dig up my old Hellfire episode, which is fully researched and scripted. That will cover me for Saturday while I'm actually on the trip. And then the following week, hopefully all going well, I will have a road trip episode for you with details of whatever happens to me on that day. So stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.